Festival is not something that's renting a field and putting a name of an artist, taking an ad in the paper. A festival is work. Welcome back to Musonomics. That's Newport Festival's founder, George Ween. I'm Larry Miller, and today we pick up where we left off with the second half of our two-part series on the state of the summer music festival industry. When we left off last week, the Summer Music Festival was still in its infancy at Newport. It was still a new concept to see large groups of people gathered outside to listen to live, non-classical music. George even recounted a story of his astonishment the first time he saw an audience stand up from their seats and crowd the stage. A lot has changed since then. The small scale of the Newport festivals is dwarfed by gargantuan events that draw hundreds of thousands of people per day, with huge revenues pulled in year after year. And at most of these festivals, people rarely sit down. So I think experientially, it's very different. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, people have latched onto and one of the things that makes it great. It's kind of unlike anything in terms of the full visual sensory overload. It's like being in a real life video game. That's Robbie Towns from the Music Business Association on the electronic dance music scene that has gone a long way to dramatically growing the festival industry. EDM, a catch-all term used to describe many different subgenres of electronic music that you can dance to, is responsible for some of the biggest and most well-attended festivals in the world. You know, there's uh, EDC, the EDC Vegas, that's Electronic Daisy Carnival, that's Pascal Rotella and Insomniac Events. That would be um, domestically the biggest one, unless something, I, I believe the, the numbers for this year, again, are just astonishing, somewhere around, you know, 134,000 people per day. Uh, I think one thing, too, just to provide a bit of context is that the backstory of like a festival like that is actually not in the past four or five years. For EDC, that the first iterations of that were in the 90s, and there's a bit of dispute about the name and kind of, you know, who actually passed the name off to, to who, but we do know that it was started in, you know, early to mid-90s, and then at some point, probably in the late 90s, Pascal picked it up and started doing like the first kind of iteration of what it is today. But to me, that's interesting because a lot of people know EDM as kind of this wave that's happened in the past, let's say, you know, three to four years. But the reality is, is that it's been built over decades. But the success of festivals isn't restricted to EDM. Billboard's Ray Waddle calls the festival sector the most robust sector of the music business today, but with a caveat. Well, the health... I would say it's the most robust sector of the music business now, not just even the live music business. It's uh, the growth phase and a pretty mature business in this country. It's not at the saturation point, but it is at the point where you got to be really careful about what you stage, when, where. you got to watch out. I mean, the days of a destination festival going up and attracting coast to coast without too much thought into it other than spending a lot of money on talent. Those are over. You've got to be really specific. You know, the holy grail in the festival business is exclusivity and uh, in terms of talent, and that's very hard to do now. You've got bands building their whole tours around playing festivals, and uh, it's a lot dependent on the cycles. So, you know, you have Coachella really seeks that, 
and managed it with ACDC this year, and they've managed it in the past with the a Roger Waters or a Prince, but that's going to get harder and harder to do, you know, and it costs more and more money to do it. You know, a, a major exclusive headliner can cost, you know, two to $5 million or more. So uh, that part of it, you know, it's it's a boon for the artist. It's boon in terms of artist development. So many acts get to play in front of a lot of people, and the true joy in festival attending is uh, the discovery, you know, who you find that you didn't know about when you're going from point A to point B and somebody stops you and you listen. So that's been very good for the agents and for the uh, developing acts. It's very healthy, but uh, and there are pockets of growth within it, like uh, uh, country and electronic. What I think we will see is more smaller regional festivals or even local festivals. You'll see more branded events like the uh, Project Paps up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, you'll see more genre-specific and artist-curated events. It's going to become more niche because the marketplace is getting pretty full with the broad destination type events. There's one probably every 200, 250 miles across the country. Indeed, the festival market is one of the most fertile segments in the music industry. And one of the greatest success stories in the world of festivals is the Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester, Tennessee, the multi-day festival that just celebrated its 14th anniversary in June. Bonnaroo reportedly grosses around $25 million with 80,000 attendees mostly staying on site for all four days and provides an economic impact on the state of Tennessee of over $50 million a year. It started as a jam band festival, and it's still pretty eclectic, but now includes headliners like Bruce Springsteen, Kanye West, Billy Joel, and Dead Mouse. Bonnaroo was independently produced by its founders, Superfly and AC Entertainment, until Live Nation bought a controlling interest earlier this year. We got on the phone with Jonathan Myers from Superfly, one of Bonnaroo's co-founders. Ray Waddle from Billboard said that Bonnaroo in 2002 jump-started the American festival scene that, along with Coachella, has become the cornerstone of the American music business. How did Superfly come to do Bonnaroo? Yeah, so at the time, uh, so this is around 2001, we were based in New Orleans, uh, I went to school down there. I had an intern at the New Orleans Jazz Fest, one of the great festivals in the world. Uh, my first job was booking uh, a famous club called Tipitina's, uh, which was a great experience. That's how I met one of my partners uh, who helped me. And we went off on our own and under the name Superfly started doing events all throughout the city, focusing on the special event timeframes like Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and we were using all kinds of venues. We were going into warehouse space and totally four-walling it, bringing in sound and lights and staging and running the bars to the river boats, to theaters. Uh, so that's how we got our start. But we soon kind of pivoted, kind of realizing we were limited both creatively and financially um, with that model. And so we set out to do a festival. And we started looking in the southeast because uh, that's where we were based out of, and started putting our business plan together, started talking to vendors, and we were directed to a site 
in Manchester, Tennessee, which is 60 miles south of Nashville. And we cold called the landowner. At that point, we had never even done an outdoor show. Uh, we drove up to the site. It just felt right. It was one of those things. And uh, soon after, we, we raised the money through our investor. Uh, we, we partnered with a local-based promoter, and we set off on a route. This is now 2002, and with not a dollar spent on advertising, we didn't use Ticketmaster at the time. So it was all word of mouth. It was kind of at a really interesting time. It was the iPod had just come out, so the way people were listening to music, artists were really starting to just use the Internet and start to connect to their fan base. There was more direct artist-to-fan ticketing. And we sent out one email blast. We had the artists send out one email blast. And we sold out 70,000 tickets in 10 days. And so that kind of kicked off, you know, our kind of next phase of our uh, our career. And just now we've, we've been doing Bonnaroo for we just had our 14th anniversary. Uh, we've had, geez, uh, so many amazing artists across so many different genres from huge headliners like Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen and Elton John and to artists that have come up the ranks that are now headliners like, Mumford and Son and Black Keys and Kings of Leon and artists like uh, My Morning Jacket. Uh, and, you know, we touch on every genre. You know, we have Jay-Z and Stevie Wonder. And so it's this incredible gathering of 90,000 people that live on this farm for four days, uh, second weekend of June, and it's basically 24 hours. And there's comedy and film and art installations. And there's an incredible spirit and just great vibe there. So that's Bonnaroo, but we do many other things as well at Superfly. What is it about Bonnaroo that is so immersive that you're able to bring an audience back year after year? I think it starts, and there's lots of great festivals out there. I do think Bonnaroo has a unique spirit. I mean, I'm so close to it, but the vibe there is just so great. And I think part of that is the camping experience. You're living there, and you're side-by-side side with people from other parts of the country, walks of life, backgrounds, whatever, and everyone's in the spirit to have a good time. And it's amazing what that can create. It's different than, you know, we do other festivals, uh, like our San Francisco Festival Outside Lands. It's much different, and it's still an amazing spirit and vibe. But I think the camping, you know, the fact that there's a destination to get there, so you're really, as a fan, kind of invested in the experience. It's not the, you know, it's a, it's a little bit down and dirty, but that kind of adds to it. You know, it can be almost like, a, you know, a badge of honor to attend. But I think that's where this really deep engagement and experience happens. And, look, I, I think we're known at Superfly for the attention to details, like creating almost kind of the thing where you see in a theme park, doing these different kind of immersive themed areas throughout the grounds. And whether that's, around food and drink concepts or whether that's art installation, but it's, it's even more than the amazing artists that play the stages. We're, we're, we're trying to create something bigger. How do you book Bonnaroo? What's changed? Well, we're constantly evolving, both as individuals and as the festival, you know, and hopefully growing in a good way. And we've always set out Bonnaroo to be this amazing celebration of music. Thankfully, there's so much incredible music out there, and the people that program it, we have such vast musical interests. Um, but we have a small committee that we basically talk every week, and we, we start with a grid, almost like a crossword puzzle, 
And we kind of, you know, laying out all the stages. And look, we know like we're certain slots, like a level artist, like a, you know, a headlining artist needs to close the main stage. And so we start identifying who's touring, who has a new record out, who hasn't played the festival, who would we always love to have. So it starts there. And then each week, we identify a round of artists that we're going to submit an offer to. Um, and we really are thoughtful each round of trying to show kind of different genres, et cetera, other things we're aware of. And then we make those offers, and this crossword puzzle slowly fills in, and it changes a whole bunch over the course of the many months we book it. But we start pretty much right after the last festival. You're kind of always in discussions, especially with some of the bigger artists, uh, and that's how we do it. In 2007, you and your partners literally bought the farm where Bonnaroo is held for a reported $8.7 million. What led you to invest in the property at that time? I mean, it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, in order to elevate, first of all, the experience, we had to lay down more infrastructure. You know, we it, it's just too, it's very costly every time to kind of build this pop-up city. And so to really like kind of go to the next level, we had to we had to put in some assets into the property. You know, it was uh, it, both a financial and, and enhancing the experience. And so the landowner at the time said he was open to the idea. And we kind of wanted to control our destiny. We really believed in that we were already in a few years. It was kind of proven a success. And it just made business sense. And, and look, you know, we are – committed to creating other events on the property, and I think that there is a big opportunity for us to do that, and so it just made sense. In April, you and your partner sold a majority to Live Nation. Why sell, and why now? Number one, it was the right business deal for us, so I'll start there. We really like them as a partner. We wouldn't have done it if we didn't like them and thought that they could bring value. So the value that they're bringing is we're going to make a significant investment into the property. So you're going to see major infrastructure being put into the property, which is going to enhance the experience, the Bonnaroo experience, and really help us create other events on the property. It's really led by those two things. Look, their access to headline talent, that adds value. The fact that we can now, with other A-level festival partners, can think about things like RFID right, and that technology and cashless systems and have some good economies of scale across those properties. That's beneficial to us. Jonathan, what does Bonnaroo look like in five to ten years? Five to ten years, I think the property is going to be so on a different level in the accommodations. I think it's going to continue being one of the iconic festival properties globally. I think that you're going to see more of the programming being brought out to the campgrounds and you're kind of, the programming is all around you, less separation of here's the programming and here's the camping. I think you're going to see other events on the property. I think you're going to see more programming, uh, content opportunities around that property, and hopefully just like more great, amazing energy created. Jonathan Azu used to work at Superfly. He's now general manager of Red Light Management, a big artist management company whose founder, Corin Capshaw, financed Bonnaroo. I didn't attend the very first Bonnaroo, but I remember sitting, I remember graduating from college and 
where I went to Drake University and I was the concert planner like a lot of guys that are in the entertainment space now were all former college programming folks or production folks. And I remember leaving college and thinking how great it was that I had done all these amazing shows and I turned on MTV and there's Jonathan Maris sitting at a press conference in Manchester, Tennessee, talking about the first Bonnaroo. And I said, wow, he just pulled the complete hat trick of the ultimate festival. And I, and I remember thinking at that time how smart it was to lean on the fact that Fish was on hiatus and the Grateful Dead had been gone for a while to really find a kind of gathering place for those like-minded folks to experience a multi-day festival. And I think that attributed to a lot of the success of the first year. Other than the, uh, the booking policy and the timing, what do you think were the other legs of the stool or the other corners of that hat? I, I think uh, that during that generation was, was just when the iPod was taking off too. So, you know, we began, we began to have much more of a playlist type approach to the way consumers listen to music. And if you look at a festival, the way that it's programmed, it's, you know, especially Bonnaroo, right, which is a Creole term for good stuff. So that that's the filter, right? Is it great? And with that comes artists from multiple different backgrounds and different genres, no different than the way that consumers were, 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 were sampling music at that time was in the same way. It was like a playlist. It was different songs from different genres all through one listening session. So in a sense, Bonnaroo also spoke to that. What is it that makes that festival so special? To me, it's the communal experience. I mean, it's the fact that you are essentially in the middle of nowhere. 99% uh, of the folks that come on site are staying on site. Uh, I, I like to say time has no time. And when you're sitting with somebody that you know or you just met, you say to yourself, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to go see this show. Do you want to come? And they kind of say, why not? and they follow you to the show and you hang for a couple hours. There's no stress. There's no, I got to get back to the hotel. There's no, I have to get to a, a meeting uh, or uh, there's, a, there's some after party I have to get to. Either you're there and you're experiencing it or you're at your tent and you're resting. You know, that's it. So, it, you know, for, for me, even though the festival is four days, it feels like one big day, if you will, because there is, time has no time there. And so let's talk about the artists. At the first Montaroo, it wouldn't surprise anybody who was involved in the show for somebody looking at the show today to say, yeah, that really was a jam band festival. Widespread Panic, Government Mule, Keller Williams, Trey. How has the booking policy evolved over the 13 years that the festival's been going on? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the word policy, I don't, I don't think of the word policy when I think Bonnaroo. Because that's just the the vibe and DNA of that festival isn't there is no structure to it per se from a programming standpoint. Again, it goes back to that word of Bonnaroo and is it is it good and great stuff? And I think you have had an evolution of the type of artists that are performed there. Obviously, you know, in year one you mentioned some of those great acts that performed, and then if you look at the last you know handful of years, it's been you know artists from very different genres like like a Jay Z or uh, a, a Femi Kuti. But to me, that's just the evolution of the, of, of the brand of Bonnaroo and trying to go back to that term, good stuff. And good stuff applies to, to a lot of things. And as the festival's grown over the years, they've, they've captured that and put it on display. So no matter what genre of music it is, it's, it's great stuff. And there's also the sense of discovery at the festival too, right? So there's also, to me, if you, if you were to say, uh, the one thing that they really try to make sure is kept in mind is, are we 
putting good stuff out there that people can also discover. So sometimes that's a newer artist or sometimes that's an artist that you wouldn't expect to be at Bonnaroo. Um, you know, or it's an, a legendary artist, which has been a really fun thing that has been featured at the festival over the last few years is that somebody between the ages of 18 and 34 that attends Bonnaroo can go home and call their parents up and say, Mom and Dad, you won't believe who I saw this weekend. I saw Paul McCartney. I saw Elton John. I saw Billy Joel. Lionel Richie. Yeah, all those great legendary acts. You know, and that goes back, right? B.B. King, James Brown. They've all played the festival. How would you describe the composition of the audience and how has the audience grown? I think Bonnaroo is somewhat of a rite of passage, if you will. If you're around that age of 18, 19, and you're, you're getting ready to go to school and you're looking to do what you want to do to start your summer, Bonnaroo is kind of one of those things, you know? Um, so as far as the demographic, it still continues to be very young. And obviously, it's like-minded individuals around music and that like-minded individuals around that, that sense of enjoying you know, each other's company around a great weekend. And you're at Red Light, which is a mostly artist management company. How's Red Light involved in Bonnaroo? Really, um, you know, Corin Capshaw, who is the founder of Red Light, has been a partner in Bonnaroo since his first year. And his other business is management. And we have a variety of different artists that, from multiple genres that we manage here. And because of his affiliation with the festival, we have the ability to have the right people to reach out to for consideration to see if our bands or acts get an opportunity to perform. Doesn't mean that they get to perform or they, that it's, it's a guaranteed thing. Obviously there's a booking committee at the festival and they go through this, we, we go through the same filter and process as any other artist would. But uh, just like I said, other than the fact that we, I know who they are, so I, I, you know, I can reach out to them. How has uh, brand integration uh, changed over time at Bonnaroo? When I was at Superfly, that's a, a area of focus that I that I had while I was there was working with the brand sponsorship and integration department. And I think the one thing that I used to always talk about with a potential partner or, or, or current partners, come up with a way where they can activate on site that maximizes the fan experience. If you can think about how you maximize a fan's experience to where at the end of the weekend they think, wow, that brand or that partner really changed my festival for the better. Uh, I think that's what you what, what, what you want, and that can come to life in many different ways. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the great ones that I think about over the years was um, was a partnership with State Farm, where you know they did a lot of things on site the year that they were part of, the years that they were part of the festival. But one thing that they did is they they would help people with car lockouts in cars that got stuck in the mud, right? So here you are at the festival, you lost your keys, or you get stuck in the mud because it rained. Not unheard of at Bonnaroo. Not unheard of at Bonnaroo, what do you do, right? And there's State Farm right there, uh, you know, to help get you out of a bind. And that's, again, maximizing a fan's experience. Like a good neighbor. Like a good neighbor. <laughs> in, uh, in April this year, the founders of Bonnaroo sold a significant piece of the business. We read a majority of the business to Live Nation. How might that affect the festival, if at all? I think if anything, it may give them the opportunity to explore maybe new business opportunities with the site. But as far as Bonnaroo as a festival, the same partners that started it all these years ago are still the same partners that are involved with determining how it comes to life and the way it's programmed going forward. So I don't know if you'll see a, a change um, per se. 
uh, other than um, maybe there's things outside the scope of Bonnaroo that may happen with the property. Is there a capacity to grow the Bonnaroo Festival in terms of either attendance or days? I would say there's, a, there's an opportunity to grow the Bonnaroo brand, right? There's an opportunity to grow the Bonnaroo brand. And, and over the, the past years, you've seen some examples of that. Bonnaroo has, uh, has its own Ben & Jerry's flavor, uh, which was a lot of fun to put that together. I, 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 I happily was a part of the testing committee uh, <laughs> to try to decide what, what was the right taste <laughs> for the ice cream. What is the right taste for a Bonnaroo ice cream? Uh, well, again, it's uh, going back to that, that concept of good stuff. So, you know, it's a mixture of different flavors. So it's the vanilla, it's the chocolate, it's the toffee. So it's kind of this hodgepodge of flavors that when you taste it, it just feels right. It feels good. Any forecast you may want to make for the future of Bonnaroo? The future of Bonnaroo is uh, continuing to be a great festival where for one weekend, people that again are like-minded uh, in spirit and taste and music can, can convene on site and come with one, two, three or more friends and leave with 10, 20 friends. And that's one of the things that I've always loved about Bonnaroo. To me, it's almost like uh, it's almost like summer camp in a way. And and I can I can go on site and I can discover great artists. I can reconnect with old friends. And there has not been one year that I have not gone to Bonnaroo where I have left knowing somebody I didn't know before. And not just meeting them and moving on, but really getting to know that person. Because again, that time has no time concept comes to life in the fact that you really get to have real, real relationships with folks when you're on site. One more time. Thanks to visionary promoters like George Ween in Newport and Jonathan Myers and his Superfly and AC Entertainment partners, the future of North American music festivals is secure, still growing, and with opportunity for expansion in underserved musical niches and regions. That's our show for this week, and here at Musonomics, we'd like to know more about you, so we've posted a brief listener survey at musonomics.com survey. What we learn about you will help make a more responsive, sustainable podcast, so visit musonomics.com survey and tell us about yourself. Thanks in advance for participating. Thanks this episode to our guests Jonathan Myers, Ray Waddle, Robbie Towns, and Jonathan Azu. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. The Musonomics Podcast was produced at NYU by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. Thanks for listening. <laughs>